Welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy of Kids Views. I'm here today with Amy Oztan of Amy Ever After. Hi. Hello. And Andrea Smith, our technology guru extraordinaire. Hello. Hello. Um, today on the show, we are having author Dr. Margaret Quinlan join us. She is the author, along with Bethany Johnson, of You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. And we are not here to tell you you're doing it wrong. <laughs> We're actually here to tell you that all the experts are wrong to be telling you you're doing it wrong. Um, it's a really interesting book. They go back. It's not just a, um, I don't know. I don't want, I want to say it's just not just an indictment of like expert culture. It's actually a well-researched, really interesting book about parenting vice traced all the way back to the Victorian era um, through today with social media compounding everything. It's a really great conversation, I think, for all these parents out there who feel like they want advice, but then they're inundated by, by advice and in the end just feel bad about every choice they're making. Um, so we are going to have Dr. Quinlan, or Maggie, as we call her, on the show in just a moment, and then we will have our Bites of the Week. So we'll be right back with Dr. Margaret Quinlan. So we are back with our guest, Dr. Margaret Quinlan, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Maggie, I'm going to call you Maggie for this interview. Is that okay? That sounds wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. We are so excited you are here. You know, I'm going to be totally honest with you. We actually get a lot of authors sending us, you know, pitches and telling us, and immediately this resonated with us um, because who's not inundated with advice? And I'm like, oh no, are we people contributing to this? Are we giving parents all this advice that we shouldn't be? <laughs> um, so I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about how you even decide to study this field, this idea of parenting advice and the rise of parenting experts. And, you know, why did you choose this time frame? And even were you surprised by how far back this went um, in your research? This is a great question. Um, so my co-author and I, we were writing the book as we were going through our own um, health crises that the book started. We were up in New York City collecting data on twilight sleep. Um, so we drove from North Carolina to, to Brooklyn to collect some of the data for that that ended up being that chapter. And while we were going through that trip, we were sitting on the bed in a hotel in New York City, and my co-author was in the shower, and she got a voicemail left on her machine that said that her um, infertility treatment was not going well, that the eggs were not were not making it. And so, you know, our journey started from very personal places. Um, we both were inundated with a lot of advice being thrown at us, and we kept thinking, okay, if we're white, middle class, well-educated, you know, we identify as cisgendered, able-bodied temporarily. Um, we have all of these things sort of quote-unquote going for us, but yet we're still getting all these consistent messages of the ways in which we were doing preconception, conception, pregnancy, childbirth, and then the early toddler years, the ways in which we were getting all these messages from various experts about how we were doing it wrong. We really wanted to figure out where did some of these messages begin? And so my co-author, Bethany Johnson, she is a medical historian. And it was really fun to work with her on this project because she really helped to ground some of the 
information that was coming at us on social media by saying, okay, we're getting these messages about, you know, different ways to increase your chances of having a a boy or increase your chances of having a, a girl, biological male or female. And, you know, where did those messages come back from? And so we were able to find in doctors' transcripts from the early 19th century of advice oh, wow. that, they, that they were giving to, to women about how to do that. And then we were able to talk to fertility specialists who were telling us, you know, that even the information given about preconception in medical textbooks today is wrong. You know, that if if we really could increase your chance of having a boy or a girl, right, by timing it close to ovulation, that, you know, that that really is a myth. They would hang you up on your head in fertility clinics if, you know, if, if they could do it that way. But it just, you know, our bodies don't work that way. And so it was just fascinating because I felt like every crisis my co-author and I found ourselves in, we were able to trace it back and then, you know, sort of make sense of of why are women getting these messages? Why are fathers, why are trans individuals getting the same messages and trying to unpack for ourselves and hopefully for others throughout the book. So you guys went back to the Victorian age when you could, you know, kind of start when you saw this, I don't know what, like official parenting advice coming up, Um, which is interesting, right? Because I always think of like Queen Victoria had a bazillion kids, um, and, you know, I, I would assume that there was a, a fascination with that and it became this idea of, um, I know she was very much venerated as sort of this mother figure as well. Is that sort of how it started that women had a very public figure that they were supposed to emulate or that they were trying to figure out? I know it sounds crazy to say, how does she do it? Like, how does the queen do it? But, um, you know, why... Why did, I mean, I guess mothers are an easy target, but why did this become such a, a big field of study like this? I think that individuals want to have a sense of control in places where our lives feel out of control. And I think anyone who identifies as a mother or a caregiver or a parent would agree that those stages of our lives feel pretty out of control in some ways. And so that I think medical practitioners and doctors and alternative practitioners all were trying in some ways to to give people a sense of control over those stages. And mm-hmm. if something went out of control or didn't go as expected, that instead of changing the system or changing the way we talk about things, it was much easier just to place the blame on the woman's body or, you know, the mother. That, you know, there are obviously myths that being a mother is is natural and that females were sort of born to do that. And I put natural in quotes, mm-hmm. right? The idea that all women should have a baby, um, the idea that women of color are more fertile So, you know, all of these are sort of myths that have been passed on to us and not necessarily maybe questioned or unpacked the way that that I would like to see it. You know, so I think going through some of these ideas and, you know, thinking about, you know, just the different advice given to people who are pregnant, right? We saw doctors in the 19th century telling women you know, not to put their hands over their head during exercise or not to have too much caffeine or to drink milk or to work too hard or, 
to be too stressed, right? All of these messages we kept seeing in the 19th century that we still see today, right? And so mm-hmm. so I think that's it, it is that sense of hopefully maybe giving some sort of control over areas that that don't have a lot of control and um, and I think the more we medicalized women's bodies and pregnancy that 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 gave some people a sense of of having that that control. That's really interesting, right? Because for most of history, childbirth was the most dangerous thing a woman could do, you know, in terms of the how many women died in childbirth. Right. And then it was very, you know, dangerous to have the children, right? I mean, people had a lot of kids because many times children would die. Exactly. Um, young. And so it's interesting to me that they, they as that fear became maybe more allayed to some degree, they found new things to make moms crazy about. <laughs> like fear. Um, so, you know, as as you saw this, you know, these these there were these constants that sort of ran through from the Victorian era, era today. How do you look back and it's like, how do you assess that advice and what makes someone an expert? I mean, have you seen a difference between people who call themselves experts in the Victorian era versus today? Um, I think it's it's still a pretty complicated terrain, right? That it's not so simple as an individual is a lay expert or, um, you know, sort of a technical expert, that these worlds are definitely colliding. You know, throughout history, we told women who were going through infertility that, you know, just relax, right? That that message has been clear that you would get that from a gynecologist, you would get it from an acupuncturist, you would get it from a yoga instructor. Today, you could even get that same message from a mother who sells Shakeology, right? That what what you eat, um, you know, could potentially impact the quality of the baby that you have, right? And so our sort of joke is that anybody who has confidence today is often seen as an expert. And so you have to really think about, you know, what camp you're in or where you're, um, you know, who are the people you trust in order to get the best advice for you and for your family. And as somebody who I would say I'm pretty open to all different kinds of advice, you know, so it, it often is difficult to figure out who who is an expert, but on social media, it's really fascinating because people will say, well, I'm a NICU nurse or I'm a lactation consultant and, you know, I'm a pediatrician and I'm a mother of six. Like they'll announce their expertise. And so you get to sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess you have to decide if you believe them or not. It's hard to sort of fact check um, some some of these individuals, but, you know, people are pretty open about what they bring to the table and and it's fascinating because they can all be responding to one image of somebody posting about a child's rash. And so, you know, everybody has has something to say about it. And for me, it's helpful just to sort of read through all the comments and then figure out what to say. But I think like what you mentioned in the beginning about, you know, your concern is, have you been giving advice right on this on this podcast? And I think what this research has showed me is that in moments like that, I can't be the person who chimes in with advice at two in the morning when somebody's posting a panicked picture of their child's rash and not sure if they should go to the emergency room, they should wait to see the doctor in the morning, um, that I i don't see myself as a medical expert, right, to be able to weigh into that conversation. And so I think in those moments, there are ways that I can support 
those parents mm-hmm. who are who are posting in in panic, right? You know, can I transfer over, you know, s- some money so that you can have coffee in the waiting room tomorrow? Could I um I see that you're scared and nervous. Have you tried calling the nurse helpline? Um can you tell us more about the lighting when you took that picture, right? To, you know, to understand what's really happening in in the image um and to try to help that person in other ways rather than giving advice on what I would do in that situation. You are showing an amazing amount of restraint that <laughs> I was going to say, like, that is so not today. Like, everyone thinks they're an expert. I mean, it is always amazing to me. They'll always be the one person who's like, please just show this to your doctor and don't listen to all these people. <sighs> but, you know, it is it is very tempting for everyone to chime in and decide they know. And you also have to look at what the person giving the advice is trying to sell. Because Uh when you sell essential oils, essential oils cure everything. They'll cure that rash. They'll cure the the sleeplessness and the infertility and everything. And, you know, we're trying to sell a podcast. Are they trying to sell, you know, some kind of other product? And I think a lot of people don't really consider that. But, you know, I think also at that moment, people are looking for any kind of advice, right? They kind of have a sense in their head of what they think they should do, and then they want someone to back them up. And so what you say is so true, because it's kind of like you have to choose who you want to take the advice from, right? You have to look and see who is this person. Um, Sometimes it's got to be overwhelming to have 75 comments of people Uh telling you what to do. And when you choose who you want as your experts, right? It's kind of like, you know, a movie critic or a theater critic. You know, you find the one person whose tastes align with yours Mm -hmm. and then they're your expert. Because if you read every single movie critic or restaurant critic, then you're just going to have to go try every single thing before you figure out what works for you. So I feel like a social media today, you're just bombarded with things And you have to just get through that clutter and figure out who's the one person I really trust here. So I think what you're saying is so right on. And one thing I think that would really help this conversation is to say, okay, why is it that that person's going to social media right now? And for me, we need to be looking at the structures of our society that are leading to these moments, right? That that mother's posting because she's probably thinking, should I spend 150 to $300, maybe more, if I take the baby at two in the morning to, you know, to the, you know, to the emergency room? Mm-hmm. Is it worth the $30 copay in the morning if I just go, if I just wait till the morning, right? And so I think it also says something about how people are trying to weigh some really complicated decisions and people aren't trusting themselves and they don't feel they have the support that they need to make the proper decisions. Um, And so I think it's just a lot easier to, you know, to jump on and say, go to the emergency room, do this, right? Or, you know, but that, that there's, there's something, I think, bigger and deeper happening that, um, that we're not having the conversation about that is leading people in these moments where they do feel alone and insecure and, um, not confident in, in what to do or just looking for support, right? That I think a lot of mothers don't feel supported or, you know, we don't see a lot of fathers at two in the morning posting about rash pictures, right? It's usually mm-hmm. mothers who are up in the middle of the night breastfeeding and, or, you know, doing different things, which, which has led to some of these moments. 
No, and a really funny thing happens when the dads post about this stuff because there's a hilarious post going around Facebook right now where this dad goes onto a forum to say, you know, my 15-month-old is headbutting us and hitting us and, you know, what can we do? And while there were a few genuine pieces of advice, it was most of the advice was just funny, you know, like involving duct tape and like the whole I mean, like genuinely funny, like I'm reading this thread and I'm cracking up. But there was very little actual advice for this dad. Fascinating. And it's just because it was a dad that posted. So I think it's hilarious. Yeah. And it was dad's answering. Wow. Right. Yeah, it is really weird. Um, although I always think maybe moms need a little of that. That's, that was <laughs> my know, reaction. Like... And in fact, the one of the people in the thread that I was discussing it on was like, why can't mom threads be like this? Why are we always so serious and judgy? Right. I also think that mothers are also thinking, okay, you know, I remember reading the the sleep books when my um, baby was born Mm -hmm. and it was so stressful to me because I felt like I had already messed the baby up, you know, that (laughs) this baby was already going to have trouble in school, was going, you know, to have lower IQ, was going to have all of these things. And so I think when you're constantly bombarded with all of those messages that whatever decision you make is going to impact them for the rest of their life, it's hard to just make a joke of it. And maybe mothers understand that. (laughs) Uh, But you know, I'm not saying that that fathers don't don't get those messages, too. But but yeah, it is it is fascinating why we can't have a little more fun with some of these. But you know, we are seeing more mom, you know, Instagram celebrities who who do post funny memes and who do, um, you know, talk about taking parenting less less seriously and having having more fun with being a bad mom in quotes and and all of those kinds of things. And so I I do think that that is starting more, but I think when it comes to medical information that that we're the ones who who are targeted a little more with it for, you know, the dads aren't usually blamed if the kid is still banging their head at, you know, 7 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, cuz Freud never blamed the dad. Right. <laughs> it always went back to the mom. But I wonder too, um, you know, you can you can look back and see those fads, like right, like I was probably a Dr. Spock baby, like he was the big parenting guru when I was born, and then there was Dr. Sears, right, and the attachment parenting. There does seem to be, um, and I think when my daughters are born, it was Dr. Carp with like the happiest baby. Um, and the baby whisperer, she was the other. And she honestly, I will say right now, that was the only book worth buying and the only book that, book that worked because whatever she said was right. So I'm <laughs> going to say that right now it worked for me. I don't know if it'll work for you, but oh my God, um, she, what, what, whatever we did that she said to do, it did work. But I do wonder too, if a lot of it is we've seen like a major rise in those parenting trends as we've also seen sort of the rise of people not living near extended family. Yes. Um, and, and you know, I thought about that when you said that women just don't have, you don't have the support at two in the morning where maybe you would have had, you know, your mom or your aunt or your grandmother or someone around who'd been through that, right? Who's seen what strep looks like, who's seen coxsackie, you know, which is always the one every kid gets where you're like, what is that rash? Um and just, we don't have that anymore. So that's why people turn to the internet. Because what do you do when you don't have your mom upstairs? That's, I mean, that's a, absolutely my situation that, you know, I'm a plane ride away from, from all of my family. And I've had to build my own mom, quote unquote, network. Um, and I feel like a lot of people too, that as soon as you enter the mom world, your social support changes, right? That I 
before had a lot of friends who did not have children. And then as soon as I had children, that has shifted. And so um, I do think things are changing. And we also have access, you know, on our phones 24 hours a day, that there are apps for all of this, that we're able to email our doctors, um, that there's apps that monitor baby sleep and how much they eat. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's an app for everything, right? And so it's, it's hard to sort of detach from some of the information that it is over, you know, overwhelming. Well, I saw in another interview that you took social media off of your phone because it just took you to dark places. Um, uh, That's, I think for a lot of people, it's like a lifeline, but also it just spins them into this idea that they're just not good enough. Yeah. And it just, you know, it just became, I, you know, there was even after, you know, my children were born, I had already been home from the hospital and I was already getting messages of people mad at me for not posting pictures of the baby or announcing. I was like, I can hardly spell my name. You know, I don't even, I couldn't even see the pictures to see what they looked like to post anything. And so, and I, you know, I was looking at all these pictures of all these babies who were meeting milestones that mine weren't. And um, you know, not even sure what what that meant, and and so so yeah, so I did take Facebook off my phone, and I took Instagram off my phone because it just it it became unhealthy for me, and it also it wouldn't allow my mind to shut off and to be present in the moment, and so um, you know, I found myself like breastfeeding and do on social media at the same time, and you know, it just was it was it was too much for me, so. Well, that's probably the best advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Get off social media if you're a new mom. I mean, it is, I mean, it wasn't around when my daughters were born. Oh. And I'm so thankful because my daughters just watched a lot of HGTV <laughs> by default, actually, while I was breastfeeding. But I think that was probably better than than me scrolling Instagram and Facebook and everything. And then there were all these, you know, perfectly, um, you know, sort of curated pictures with perfect lighting and, um, you know, all mm-hmm. the, the babies were in you know, matching clothes with their mother and, you know, everybody was healthy and happy and never getting sick. And, um, and so, you know, it just, it, it didn't give me more confidence in what I was doing. And so, you know, everybody posting with the baby stickers of, you know, how, how great everything was going. And I, you know, my babies would like throw them off and, you know, bite on them, you know, so not nothing ever like looked so, so pretty or, if I would post a picture, you know, we live in North Carolina on Lake Norman and, you know, people would comment, oh, where's your baby's life jacket? You know, like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, like everything would just cause so much stress or I would <laughs> check back to see how many people liked it or commented on it. And, um, and you know, as, as if that was going to affirm that I was doing a good job in quotes. So. Oh, so much pressure. What do you think from all the research you guys did? What, what is your big takeaway? Um, you know, what, what do you hope moms especially, but I guess all parents understand about this whole parenting advice industry <laughs> um, and the new, you know, rise of quote unquote experts on social media? Like what, what do you think is your big takeaway from this research? So my co-author and I are really careful to, again, to not be the people that give advice, but I can tell you just some things that I've learned. Again, I think getting in getting the information you need or, you know, checking in on social media and then getting out quickly is, is helpful. I think there's one of our participants, trans parent, um, talked about how they 
needed to find ways to quiet the noise. And so if social media is one of those that does not help you sort of quiet the noise so you can listen to your own instincts, um, you know, to be aware of that, to think about who you were maybe before you were a parent and to follow maybe those accounts or to, you know, interact with, you know, sort of lighter topics, if that, if that makes makes sense, um, to, you know, that your whole identity doesn't need to be about being a parent because there's hundreds of thousands of people on social media who who are better, you know, who are showing that they're better parents than you are probably. So, um, and I think another thing, you know, just again, being aware of, you know, the construction of mothering that that's there. And for me, it's really helpful to talk to real people about real experiences in person. And, you know, that you realize that you are probably doing things more similar to, to other parents. Um, you know, I've also tried to follow people who are potentially more empowering, right? Who are more open about postpartum struggles, um, who are, you know, advocating for people who are, you know, dealing with depression or who are going through infertility. And I think I've also tried to focus on the ways in which social media has really helped me during some dark moments that my co-author had her baby before um, you know, several days before her milk was able to come in due to gestational diabetes and some other complications. And so I was able to drive an hour to her house and give her some of, of my breast milk. And then I was able to connect her with people on social media who were able to donate milk for her. And then her son ended up having some dairy sensitivities. And so she was able, you know, to connect with other people um, who you know, had dairy-free milk that were able to were able to help her out. And so I think in some of those dark moments, it's it's helpful to remember that that there are people who have been really helpful to me. And, you know, that when my son um, started to lose weight and, you know, wasn't um, it was considered failure to thrive, I was able to connect with other mothers who had that same experience and who made me feel better, you know, my son was at 1% um, for weight. And, you know, another mother just said to me really nicely, she said, well, somebody has to be 1%. And that, you know, in, in that moment, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Like, somebody has to be 1%. And it might just be him and he's going to be tiny and, and to be okay with that. And so, you know, I think it's finding, finding the good people and the people you can connect with. And, who can, you know, support you in, in those difficult moments, but, you know, to protect yourself, protect your heart and, um, you know, get in and get the advice that you need. No, that's great. Well, thank you for joining us today. I think this was really interesting and informative for our listeners. And hopefully we, we give our advice with a dose of um, optimism and, and no judgment. But thank you so much for, for being on the show. And we will link to the book, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, which you co-wrote with Bethany Johnson. Um, it's really fascinating, I think, you know, this whole idea that mom, someone's always been telling moms what to do and that they're doing it wrong. Like, I love that that's the title of your book, is <laughs> You're Doing It Wrong. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was such an honor. I had a lot of fun. Bye. Bye. We will be right back with our Bites of the Week. We are back with our Bites of the Week. Amy, what do you got? I have a fun one. So I came across an old article from a few years ago on Gizmodo, 
where um, the author, Matt Novak, he looked through like the, the White House records of when Jimmy Carter was in office and made a list of every single movie that Carter watched while he was in the White House. Is it like every wonderful movie ever made? <laughs> okay. Like every feel-good, lovely... That's like... the funny thing, because like he had such a reputation of being a prude, and you would think that it would just be like all these benign classics, but it's not. Like It's a huge range, including some X-rated stuff, like stuff that now would probably be, I don't know, R, but back then was X. Um, and the really crazy thing is he he was in office only one term. He watched 400 movies. That's how he decompressed, obviously. I guess. That's because Fox News wasn't around for yeah. him to watch then. Well, he would like, never have watched Fox News. I know. <laughs> but may, maybe MSNBC, I don't know. But it, he, I mean, that's like almost one every three days like that's that's crazy um i could see that actually like you have a theater you have a movie theater in the white house right and maybe they entertained maybe his wife wanted to you know maybe it was like a way for him to hang out with his wife and decompress and yeah. watch movies and yeah i need a teenage yeah. daughter too well yeah for many of them you can see a list of who was watching with him which is really interesting like sometimes yeah, it was just cool. a few people sometimes it was like dozens of people and when i went to the white house a few years ago to see michelle obama speak um they were were using the White House Theater, which is really small. Um, they were using it as the coat room. So, you know, we kind of got to peer in and see what it looks like. Um, and it was really cool. I'll post some pictures from that because like all of the chairs are normal, except for the four in the front are like these big, cushy, you know, <laughs> armchairs that That's is awesome. obviously for the first family. But I just thought that it was, it was really cool to look through this list and kind of get get a little sense of of his movie tastes, which were not what I expected. And then the article also links to two other articles, um, one that has all of the movies that Nixon watched and one that has the movies that Clinton watched, although there are some very large gaps in Clinton's. So they think that that was like he wanted to hide some things that he was watching, like around the the Monica Lewinsky time. So it's it's intriguing. The whole thing is, or he had other things to deal with that wasn't watching anything. Maybe you know it's, but there are like very very large gaps that were unlikely. But one piece of trivia that I found to be absolutely hilarious. Can you guys guess what the very first movie was that Carter watched in the White House after his inauguration and after he moved in? I don't know a Ronald Reagan movie. Nope. All the President's Men? Yes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Had it just come out? It was like the year before. Okay. Well, he was campaigning. He's like, I didn't get to see the best movie of the year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did Robert Redford like visit? Was it like Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman? Oh, uh, I didn't. <laughs> I did not look to see who was there. Um, but I just thought that that was a little, little neat piece of trivia. I love him. There was an article um, recently about everything he was right about, about climate change, <laughs> like all the things he proposed during his administration that people like laughed and said, like, he's so stupid and this is crazy. And like it was right about like every single thing. I'm like, yep. He told everyone to put a sweater on and like everyone thought it was the worst thing any president could ever tell people. So yep. <laughs> like turn your heat down and put a sweater on. Everyone's like, oh, my God, how can he tell people that? Meanwhile, here we are. <laughs> so. Um, all right, Andrea, what do you got? All right. So this is another one of those um, products that we saw at CES that has finally come out. You know, we say every year when we talk about um, 
our products that we've seen at CES, these could take months to come out, right? <laughs> we see them in January and just any time throughout the year, some as late as even November. But the ones that come out are very cool. And um, Amy and I saw something called the Clear Up Sinus Pain Relief Device. It is, oh my God, it's about this, it's smaller than a, a phone. It's like a, like a, a computer or laptop mouse size almost. And it's a device that you use to help with the sinus pain from allergies. I know, Rebecca, you get this a lot. Um, whether you suffer from seasonal allergies, year-round allergies, you can use this at home. Um, and you just kind of rub it over your brow bone, your nose bone, under your cheek, all the places where that sinus pain hits you. Um, and it helps relieve the pain. Uh, actually, they say the pain due to allergic rhinitis. Um, it's kind of cool in that it, it doesn't have any chemicals. It uses low-level electrical stimulation. So you're basically like running this over your face for like five minutes, like a little at-home spa massage. Uh, it takes about five minutes, and there's three levels of intensity for it. And when you're done, I don't know, it just your pain is gone and it's oh. it's very cool does it help at all like drain like how does it work like does you it know, drain, help the sign like does that electrical impulses like zap everything in there and help it like flush it i don't know well so they have what they call this proprietary microcurrent waveform which basically means it's it's this low level electrical stimulation and what it does is it stimulates the sinus nerve fibers under the skin so if you can imagine you're holding this device against your skin on the outside and it kind of guides you to the optical points with this vibration system um you know like under the brow area and along the cheekbone and then what happens is the electrical stimulation um stimulating that alleviates the pain and sinus pressure by shrinking the swelling of the blood vessels if that makes sense, right? So you've got those blood vessels mm, yes. in there that are enlarged from all the crap in there and everything. And what this does is it shrinks the blood vessels. So it's shrinking the swelling, which reduces the sinus pain. Oh, that's much better than a steroid. Like that's what the steroid does. That's so much better. Right. And that's why actually those nasal sprays that you use, they become right. addictive too. Right. Well, you, yeah, you can't use Afrin. Like, you should never right. more you than can't a couple use times. It. Sometimes I use it on the airplane, right? Because yeah, I always know I'm going to have an airplane. issue. Right. So this is I'm going to see you pulling that... this out on the airplane instead. <laughs> Excuse <can>. me. <laughs> Excuse me for a minute. <laughs> I'm just going to have a mini day spa experience here. I swear I'm not about to tase you. I just have sinus issues. <laughs> but it is FDA cleared. Um, they say it's proven effective. And I've tried it, and it's very cool, and it does help relieve that sinus pressure. Um, you know, I gotta check this out. Got, I, I have, have a couple people that I would give this to to really see if it worked. And, and it's <laughs> small, you know, like it's good for travel. It's not like a right. huge device that you have. Well, to that's bring good with for you. airplanes. That's where the it's sinus pressure not is the only worst. small and good for travel. It's also rechargeable batteries. Oh, that's cool. So you just plug it in and you recharge the batteries. Right. But the main thing is, is that it's small. It's rechargeable. It's a one-time fee. You're not running out and buying. Um, medication like cartridges and, and, or anything right and it's available over the counter you don't need a prescription oh, that's for cool it. it's not like that so, I think that migraine thing you need a prescription for but that's cool right. 
It's over the counter, no nose spray, no nasal stuff. Right. Just well, you do it with your nose spray. <laughs> you gotta, you got to get it all going <laughs> at the same time. You get your Flonase, you get this thing, you get a freaking steamer thing. Anything You're all set. you can do to get rid of that sinus oh, thing. Oh my God, it's the worst. Well, that sounds awesome. I'm actually really eager to, to, see, to see it in action. Um, all right, so my bite this week is something we like to talk about annually on this show, which is Bake It Happen. Um, if you don't know, hashtag Bake It Happen and BakeItHappen.net, the website for this campaign. It is an amazing breast cancer awareness campaign. It's not even breast cancer awareness. I don't even like saying that. It's an actual fundraising campaign to raise money um, for um, like stage four breast cancer. Um, this is not, it's for prevention, it's for finding a cure, it's for metastatic breast cancer. So it's very aggressive, it's very particular. Um, and they've raised over a hundred thousand dollars, I think, in the life wow. of the campaign. It's so easy. You can go to bakeithappen.net and see what to do. You don't have to do anything if you don't want to. You could literally donate five dollars and post that that's what you did and use hashtag bake it happen. Or the foundation of the campaign is you bake something. You can bake a group. There's a group. I don't remember how many it is. A group of recipes on the site, maybe three or four, that were Shari Brooks, who is the founder of the campaign, who writes My Judy the Foodie. They were her mom's recipes, and they were kind of her most requested things that friends and family always wanted her to bring to things or looked forward to, um, starting with her amazing banana bread. But you can bake one of Judy's recipes and then you share it with someone. Like that's what's so lovely is you make these baked goods, you share it with someone, you post a picture of the baked goods, you hashtag bake it happen, and money is donated for every social media post. And this year they have a matching grant too. I remember the first year we talked about this, one of you baked cookies and brought them into the studio. And they were so good. That was Amy. I yeah. think I did her mom's crinkle cookies. I think cookies. Amy did. Yeah. And her mom's recipes are so good. And you know, we we um if you don't want to bake, you can even just share somebody else's social share of the picture. Like and and money will be donated from that. So it yeah. could not be easier. And I'll link to the last time Sherry was on the show because that episode has actually been really popular. It's a great episode. Um, it's Sherry with her sister, actually. Um, and it's just, there are a lot of amazing bloggers involved in it this year and Instagrammers. And it's just such a nice way because you're sharing kind of a memory of Sherry's mom. You could bake whatever you want, but if you choose that or you're just sharing some love, which, you know, food is love <laughs> um, and raising money at the same time. And I think there's not a lot of um, fundraisers during Breast Cancer Awareness Month where you start to feel like overwhelmed by the pink washing. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of fundraisers that are very specific for this type of aggressive breast cancer. Yeah. And 100% of the money goes to that funding. There's no overhead. There's no giant organization with the CEO who needs to be paid 100%. Um, and you can read all about where that money is donated and everything again on bakeithappen.net. And we'll also put um, our social shares on the Parenting Bites Twitter account, which is parenting underscore bites. And with that, uh, that is our show for today. You will find links to everything we talked about on the show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash parentingbites and also on parentingbites.com. Please rate, review, share, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, send us your questions, issues, anything you'd like us to talk about on the show, or just comment on 
the shows you've listened to. Um, tell us what you agreed with or didn't agree with. Tell us how you're doing it all wrong. Um, and that's it. Until next week. Happy parenting. Bye. Hey, this is our Parenting Bites disclaimer. Everything we talk about on the show is our own opinion. Any products we recommend, it's our own personal recommendation for entertainment purposes only. If you buy something through our affiliate links or you just happen to buy or see or read or watch something that we've recommended, it's at your own risk.